The most dangerous place you can be as a trial lawyer is to think you've got it figured out. I'm still trying to get better. I still have the passion for it. I believe in it. Everyone can learn to do what I do. And yet there's a group here that continues to get extraordinary verdicts. Trial Lawyers University is revolutionizing educating lawyers to be better trial lawyers. It's been invaluable to me. Trial Lawyers University, where the titans come to train. Produced and powered by LawPods. Well, today we got a very special guest, Jacob Norman from, uh, well, I don't know where you're from these days, Bozeman, Montana. Is that right? I'm in Bozeman right now. He's in Bozeman now, but originally from Wyoming. So Jacob and I are old friends from the Trial Lawyers College when it was still on the ranch before the, the big falling out that took place during the pandemic. And that's a whole nother story because Jacob and Nick re represented me in that, in that case, almost in that trial. And so we have that history. And, but he was instrumental in the starting of Trojan Horse Method some back in 2014, because we were up at the, uh, we at the Trial Lawyers College. I think it was like their 20th anniversary. And uh, I was having some issues with their methodology. So instead of going to the reunion, we went on a hike up to the top of the, the Grand Tetons. Actually, we took a gondola up there, and that's where we came up with the idea. I told him the things I didn't like about the Trial Lawyers College, and he's like, well, if you don't like it, you should start your own program if you think you're so smart and that you have a better way. And, and I was like, all right, I'll do it. And that was the beginning of Trojan Horse, which was a long time ago, 10 years ago, and a lot of, a lot of life ago. So, well, let's talk about things that are most exciting. You recently had a great verdict. Usually we talk about those things at the end, but let's hear about that case because that's just so exciting. You know what I mean? Just because like to break through to eight figures and do it quickly. And so tell us a little bit about that case. Yeah, that was a, it's a toxic tort case. I don't think the focus needs to be about toxic tort. It's a lie. And when you have corporate people lie and you try the lie, I think you're going to get good results. But any, the, the toxic portion of this is, Back in the 70s, Union Oil Company of California used to drill all around California, of course, to get oil and then refine it and sell it. And they were doing this up in the Santa Maria Valley. And when they're done, what they did is just kind of covered things up. And, and there's a feature, they're called oil field features that are associated with production, which is a pit because you're in the middle of nowhere and it's where you put the bad stuff, chemicals, kind of think of it as a trash pile. Well, instead of cleaning up the trash pile before they moved on, they just covered it up with some dirt. Ten years later, my client built a house right on top of it. No notice, no nothing, nobody knew. And so when a development came, his home was literally the one on top of this particular oil field feature. And he didn't know. 30 years later, in 2015, he gets diagnosed with uh, multiple myeloma. Has no idea why he has multiple myeloma. Just kind of going through life. And... His kids had let him know, hey, we went by the house and it's gone. His son told him that. And then later, his daughter said, hey, I went by the old house and there's a two-story house there. He's already in chemo, but by now he has a, enough time on his hands to go look it up. So he just typed in his old address and Google results showed that this was a problem property. This is a, a property that Chevron, because they own Union Oil and Gas, bought back, tore down the house, took out 230 dump loads of, and this is a small regular size kind of California lot, took out 230 dump loads of 20 tons each of contaminated soil and then uh, resold it off to the public. That's how he 
for the first time ever discovered that his cancer might be connected to uh, the oil field um, production that had gone on many years before. So that's the, the root of the case. How did you get involved in it? Yeah, so I met a guy by the name of Taylor Ernst, who's also a pilot, and that's kind of, he's a lawyer and a pilot, and I'm a lawyer and a pilot, and he got the case because he's a local up there in San Luis Obispo, and they, this particular client had called his office, and he knew I had some experience in oil and gas, and so he asked if I'd be interested in helping with the case, and that's really what got it all started. And how long before the trial did you get involved? I was involved years out, but it's interesting. I think this is something that you should know is multiple people said no to this case. I'm not licensed in the state of California. So I had to, and at the time, Taylor didn't have the bandwidth to do it. He's a TBI master. He was in a case that had 111 depositions. He wanted me to handle the case and kind of run with it. So I still needed some California horsepower. So I took it to a firm and after about six months or so at the firm, the firm wrote the client a disengagement letter without telling me. They literally fired the client. So client gets a letter. I find out the client's been fired. I'm like, no, no, I'm sorry. I'm not firing you. Evidently, that firm doesn't believe in your case. We're going to you know, get the wheels on this again. So I ask another friend. He says, hey, send me everything you have on it. I send it to him. And he's like, basically, no, I don't. that's too risky for me. And... I had then asked a partner of mine, Brian Ward, and he said, yep, I'm in. And at that point, Taylor from the Ernst Law Group had some more time, and we just started kind of attacking it. So before trial, what was the offer on the case? So this trial just concluded in June. In November, we did a 998 for $11.5 million, laid everything out, told the whole story, and they responded with a $50,000 offer, which, of course— is the same as zero. So it sounds like we're going to trial. That was the only way. Right. And how long was this trial? It ended up being almost six weeks. So for people not in California, it's hard to imagine. It took me a while to get used to this, but courts have dark days and they, you know, every Wednesday was only a half a day and some Fridays were totally off, something that I'm not used to. I'm used to when a trial starts, you work it every day. So it got drug out almost six weeks um, for the first phase and then we had a pause, and about nine days after the first phase, we had our punitives phase. So it started in April and finished in June. And so what was the final result as far as compensatory and punitive damages? Yeah, so the first um, go the compensatory damages, and the jury had to work their way through the verdict form, of course, found $21 million in compensatory damages, and then further went on to the punitive damage questions and found that we could move into the punitive phase. That's That jury came back. They thought they were done, of course. They thought they were tricked. That's one of the problems with punitive phase. They can't be, and they're not supposed to be told that they'll have to stay longer. So that day when they return their verdict and then they're told they have to stay longer, which is horrible to watch happen live, actually, all kinds of jurors had problems. They had already had commitments because now they knew their work was done and they were ready to go back to work and do other things. So the judge had given them about a week and a half off, which was perfect because we got our verdict on a Friday. For the Army, I needed to be in Africa on Sunday for a full week. So it couldn't have worked out better. I went to, got the verdict on Friday, was in Africa on Sunday to Sunday, and we started punitives phase the following Monday. And the punitives phase, which is very short, and I think 
to the people that haven't done a punitive phase, my punitives phase, and of course we have a team, there's other lawyers involved, but the evidence wise, we had one, one thing to enter onto the record. And what it was, so you do an opening statement. Now it's my turn to do witnesses or whatever I want to do. And the judge through stipulation read that as of December 31st, 2022, Union Oil Company of California had a a net worth of 20 billion, 680 something million. The judge then said, Mr. Norman, do you have anything else? And I, I didn't, I had nothing else. That was my whole punitives case. Then it went over to the defense. They called a witness. Then we got closing arguments, of course, and then rebuttals. So the punitive part was ours compared to the whole trial. And again, I've, I've been getting a lot of questions about that, but that was it. We needed to know net worth of the company. And Chevron's actually worth $300 billion. I tried to get that in. The judge wouldn't allow me to go down that road. We only got to get in the uh, subsidiary value. So we have a case analysis scheduled on this verdict on August 8th. And so Pat Salvi, who's from Chicago, who also has a lot of experience in these, these um, toxic tort cases, is going to be hosting, which I'm pretty stoked about. You know, for people that never going to touch a toxic tort case, or pro- they think they never will, maybe one comes to their doors, but what kinds of um, lessons, you know, what, less, what kind of lessons did you learn in this trial? What does this trial teach you that will benefit you for, in every trial going forward, whether it's an auto case, a trip and fall, or another toxic tort? Yeah, I would say mechanically the trial's the same. Everything that people are doing to be better trialers, to be better lawyers, to be better people, that's all the same. This was my first toxic tort trial ever. Now, knowing I had this trial coming up, I went and watched uh, Rick Freeman and Nick Rowley and theirs and tried to help and volunteer and do anything I could to learn and listen and stuff like that because I knew this was coming up. But what I would say is when you're up against these corporations – so think so we're up against Chevron, even though we're the defendants technically a Union Oil Company of California, a three hundred billion dollar company, you're not gonna get what you think. You're gonna go a little bit crazy. You're going to wonder if you're dumb. You're gonna wonder if you're doing the right thing. You're gonna you're wondering if you're missing something because they don't give you anything. Even a thirty B six or PMQ or PMK or whatever people call it across the country, I noticed that and no one showed up. Now we're on preference, which is in California, when you have somebody that's either dying or old or even super young, you can get a preference trial. So we were actually worried our client may not make it. So we didn't get to go fight the fact they didn't even show up for their deposition. And I think these big corporations know that. And so we had a trial date. All I could have done is probably got forced the deposition, which would have extended the trial. And I wasn't sure at the time if my client would make it. So we went in there with almost nothing. Written discovery, they gave us almost nothing. They referred us to a website. Um, so when you're up, and it, your question was specific to toxic torts, but I think it bleeds over to major corporations, is be prepared to get nothing and stick with it. Be prepared to feel a little bit stupid. Think, Am I missing something? Do they have something that I just don't know that I can't figure out? Because I'd ask Brian and Aaron and Taylor a couple times, like, am I stupid? Like, the depositions, you know, you ask 400 questions, you might get two nuggets. If you're lucky, it's just deposition after deposition of feeling like a failure, feeling like you're not progressing the case, and none of it matters. And the reason none of it matters is because if you still have a story to tell the jury, their lies become the story. Their cover-up becomes a story. Their non-answers become the story. And then when they show up to trial, and this is a lesson I learned the hard way in this one where I was doubting sometimes 
if I was moving this case in the right direction, it just didn't matter. All that cover up, all the lies, all the horrible depositions where I felt like an idiot, it just didn't matter because the jury can figure that stuff out. Let's switch gears here for a second. So you've been in the United States Army for how long? You just mentioned this. I am I've served in both the Air Force and the Army. I'm going on my 25th year in the Army, I believe. And so here's a great question. Why? Why continue with the Army? I'm just saying it's like such a time commitment, an energy commitment. And if it logically, it doesn't make sense to an outsider. So help us, help us understand what serving does for you. Yeah. Sure. Well, I grew up poor with a single mom. And to me, the military was a way to get out of my town of Casper, Wyoming. College wasn't an immediate option. I wasn't a scholar in high school. But a ninth grade teacher named Leo Sanchez had us write a program or a paper, I'm sorry, about how we wanted our, our life to go. And I said, I want to join the military. I wanted to then get a degree in psychology. And then I, I wanted to go to law school. And I knew I wanted to do that. And that was my plan. So I set it in motion. Now, your question is about why am I still there? Well, I switched from the Air Force to the Army for college money. They, I got a, a full Army ROTC scholarship. But why do I serve today? It's, it's pretty simple. It is, it is a hassle. It is inconvenient. It's taken me away from my kids for years. I've been to Iraq, Afghanistan, Hurricane Katrina, the inauguration most recently, the weekends, the weeks, and Certainly, I could make more money or have more free time or all these different things, but I still feel like having a positive influence on the organization in which I serve. And the day that goes away, I'll walk away. And I'm coming on in 2024, it'll be my 30th year of service total. And I still feel like they need people that are willing to, to give. And it's kind of like, well, if it's not me, who would it be? It's a good question. I was just... Some other person that wants to do it, I guess, or, or feel similarly, because it's just so much, you know, because we used to have that house together in uh, Manhattan Beach. I remember how many times you had to leave to go on weekends and weeks or whatever it is. It seems like a lot, and it is a lot. So obviously, we need people to serve or we'd be in big trouble. So we appreciate that for us people that, <laughs> that may not be yeah. so inclined to go volunteer for the Army or Air Force. That'd be me. Well, that's the option, right? Like. If it's not this, it's conscription. And America does not want a conscripted army. And so, so far, I'm still happy to be there. Good. That is great. Let's talk about someplace else where you're at that hopefully made you happy to be. So you, what year did you hook up with Nick and trial by Human and Trial Lawyers for Justice? I think it was probably, what, five, six years ago? Right. So Nick and I's story started before, of course, in basic training. I was in charge of 11 people and he was one of them which is about what year was that? Nine, it was August or I'm sorry. I met Nick on October 11th of 1994. I was in charge of 11 people because I had junior ROTC experience. He was one of the 11. So how all that works out from airplanes to buses and lines at basic training where maybe if he or I went to the bathroom, we never would have ended up in basic training together. would have never known each other because the lines are kind of random the way you get funneled down and then, this line goes to that training, you know, squadron. This line goes to that training squadron, really random. So it started there, but one of your best friends, Steve King, kept telling me, hey, you need to meet my boy, Nick. You got to meet my boy, Nick. And I was like, oh, 
okay, like, well, you know, I guess I need to meet your friends. So at one Cal event, actually Steve King dragged me over to Nick to say, Hey, you got to meet my friend Jacob. I'm like, I'm looking at him. Like I know this guy. It's been over 20 years, but I know this guy. And he actually said, I think I know you. And I said, as a lawyer, and he's like, yeah, I was like, no, definitely not. And then of course, cause I had kids and it was Saturday night of Cala. I was running to the airport to uh, get the heck out of Vegas. And I realized as I was thinking about his face, where I knew him from. So I started texting people like, Hey, do you have Nick's cell phone number? And no one's responding to me. So your other friend, Ida, which is a couple time zones, even later in the middle of the night, I asked her if she had his cell phone. She said, uh, yes. I text him. I'm like, Hey man, I remember where I know you from. And he's like, where? I was like, Sergeant Lamb. And then instantly we both remembered that we're in the yearbook, like five people apart from each other by last name. He was 17. I was 19. And that's where we kind of reconnected. Yeah. Many, many years later. Right. But for the last several years, you've been working very closely with him. Is that right? Correct. Look at your shirt. It says trial by human. Isn't that the Dick Riley organization? Is that his book? Yes. Yes. So based on all the experience you and I had in, in Trojan horse, when I left Trojan horse and went to trial by human, it's really, it's the same thing, right? It's trying to get lawyers who've been taught almost nothing about how to be a lawyer, who got a degree that doesn't help you at all. Uh, and who are out there with clients that are supposed to be fighting for justice, but have no idea how to do it. And so it's just that kind of continuation. And obviously the programs are slightly different, whether you're talking about the college or trial by human or Trojan horse or case analysis or you name it, whatever, Linear's trial Academy, Doric's, whatever it is, everyone's doing something different, but this idea that we ought to help ourselves, that we've got to get ourselves on our feet, that we've got to kind of open up these, these closed doors on lawyers to help them and their clients get justice is something that's a, a core, you know, belief that I have. And so you've been with Nick and running trial by human with him. And so for people who don't know, what's kind of the philosophy of trial by human? Yeah, well, it, it starts real basic and, and it, none of this is rocket science and none of it is something that probably somebody else didn't make up before. But trial by humans really getting down to understanding and knowing your clients and telling real human stories. And it, it's not done across the desk. It's not done through a Zoom. It's not done through a phone call. It's by really getting to know your clients. It's, again, it's not Nick Raleigh didn't invent you having a meal with someone that, that you're representing will be good for you or going to their home or sometimes even allowing them into your home changes the, the dynamic of the relationship that's better. But it's it's truly just being more yourself, being more human, understanding their human stories and telling those human stories. And obviously that's basic. Both Nick and Courtney have written the books, Trial by Human and Trial by Woman. But at its core function, it's that. Just be more human. You know, the way if we came out of law school doing what they told us, we're more like robots and paper pushers and and there's nothing related to justice about what we get in law school outside of a special clinic, maybe, maybe trial advocacy. But that's a fraction of all the people that get really good experiences like that. Yeah, I would say law school is not the best experience for learning to be a trial lawyer, to, say, to understand it 
And, you know, quite frankly, you know, I think most of the programs out there just, they're just not great for learning to be a trial lawyer because you have to actually get up and do stuff. And the way most CLEs are, you just sit on your butt the whole time. And it, that's not being a trial lawyer. Trial lawyers getting up there, trying shit. Some works, some doesn't, learning from it and moving on. Well, sitting around a room with, with hundreds of people listening to someone tell a story about a case they won 10 years ago doesn't do anything for me as a lawyer, especially not the second, the third, or the fourth time I've heard the same story. It's great that great trial lawyers get great verdicts and can tell the stories. But how do I, how do I, Jacob Norman or attorney X, Y, or Z, become a better lawyer? Well, it's getting off of your butt. It's standing up. It's practicing the skills. It's, there's a whole lot of things and we can talk, talk about whatever you want, but it's certainly not by being in receive mode and then uh, walking out the door. It's just, that's not a recipe for success. It might be a piece of the pie. Certainly getting lectured to would be a tiny piece of the pie, but it's not going to be the successful piece of the pie. Well, speaking of successful piece of the pie, let me ask you, what do you think the top three qualities or character traits of a successful winning champion trial lawyer are? Well, I'm going to start with leadership. And, you know, a lot of, if the average plaintiff's firm out there is 2.5 people in America, some people will say, well, leadership doesn't matter, but I disagree. So you've got to be a leader and you might be leading the clerk. You might be leading your office. You might be leading one paralegal, one administrative assistant, or from time to time, you might be the leader of the judge or jury. But if you don't have leadership skills and or, and there's a second part of leadership, there's servant leadership, which means I'm going to actually give up a piece of me for something greater than me in order to grow a case, grow an organization, you name it, whatever it is. But I think lawyers need to be leaders because you're looked at and you're being judged by judges, by juries, and the people around you. Are you a leader or a follower? And so I think you asked for three, that's number one. I would guess that being in the military has helped you become a better leader and learn leadership. Would that be true? Yeah, I've spent years of my life on leadership. So I'm a graduate of the War College. I have a master's in strategy. That's all leadership. And so maybe that's something that only a few people get access to. But I started at my bar association as a lawyer. Let's forget about anything pre-lawyering. I started going to the bar association meetings. I thought they could be better. And then I worked my way up, secretary, treasurer, vice president, president. I wanted to change just my local bar association. I was on nonprofit boards. You can be a leader as a lawyer, even outside of your law office. And every single one of those leadership opportunities builds you your leadership qualities as a whole. So if we exempt military, because not a lot of people actually do serve, I would say there's plenty of other ways to become a leader. You could end up at Toastmasters and leading your table, leading a group, or becoming you know, a teacher and other things. So I would say leadership is something that is, I'm lucky and I feel lucky to have gotten actual leadership training through the army, but I seek it out too. I seek out leadership training and you recommended a book to me just right now, and that's you being a leader to me. If you want me to, to, to learn something that you hear me talking about, that's one way you're leading me. And, but think about all the other opportunities we have to lead outside of the military. I think there's a lot. You're absolutely right. And every time you help somebody or teach somebody something, you're, you're leading them. And that's the same thing a 
great trial lawyer has to do for the jury is to lead them and to teach them. And so, so leadership is number one. What's number two? Discipline, I would say. And discipline, you can look at it generally. You could call it self-discipline. But if you think about discipline, what it takes to show up every day to, to start out with a win, right? Like, what is the first win of the day? Getting up. Making your bed. Maybe making your bed, number two, right? Working out for some people. Now, you know, you've heard other people talk about it, but that's three wins that you just talked about. If you get up, you make your bed, and you work out, you're at three wins. But you think what it takes to do what we do, you have to be disciplined. Any, any kind of lack of discipline is eventually going to lose your bar card. But success rewards consistency. But to be but to be consistent, you must have discipline. So, you know, this is a core thing that I think anybody that's successful in or outside the law has to have have self-discipline. I would agree. You know, it's I heard it said it's like it's what we do in the dark. It's what we do when we're nobody's watching. That training, that work, that's what pays off when the lights shine in the courtroom or wherever. It's all the individualized studying and training that comes through self-discipline. So we got leadership discipline. What's number three? Self-awareness. Self-awareness is, is so critical because self-awareness isn't just kind of how am I floating around the universe. The most important self-awareness that I think I need to have is knowing my weaknesses. It's fine to know your strengths. That's fine. But knowing your weaknesses, when I asked Brian for help on this case, I knew one of my weaknesses was I didn't have time to do a lot of the workup. And Brian and Aaron had more time and Aaron had more ability to think about the motions that go into a case like this. And I needed that kind of help. I identified one of my weaknesses, just self-awareness. It was timing. My life didn't allow me to quit everything I'm doing to fight every single motion. Giving feedback is one thing. Looking at something that someone else has prepped is one thing, but to go start from scratch, you know, receive motion X and turn it into something else. At that point in my life, for those couple of years, didn't have it in me. And part of self-awareness, I think you could add EQ and people like to talk about it, but we ought to know how we're floating about in the world. But if you don't, you're going to run into blind spots and the blind spots will be with all the people that matter, with uh, the people we're in relationships with, with the people we work with. And that carries over to judges and juries the same way. Like lack of self-awareness is a recipe for disaster in what we do. Let me ask you, let's say somebody, you know, my nephew Harrison, he's studying for the bar exam. Yeah. Me too. He's a, he's, I said, I would tell man, you're the best connected law student graduate of law school there has ever been. Even, I'm even taking into account like Brian Panish's kid or like, you know, and maybe even Rex Paris's son, Cal, who's a super great young lawyer. But when I say connections, because this kid's been traveling the country with me for the last 10 years to like so many conferences and participated in so many conferences. And now he's just passing the bar or he's taking the bar. Of course, he's going to pass it. He better pass it. But he'll eventually pass. It. Let's put it this way. It may not be the first time. I think it will be. He's studying hard. But let's say he comes to you and says, Jacob. You know, I've seen your career and you've really accelerated here and you're friends with Nick and he's a great lawyer. And I know you know a lot of other great lawyers like Rick Friedman. So I want to be a great trial lawyer too. In fact, I'm going to be better than Nick Riley and Rick Friedman. But I just don't know what I should do. Like, what should I work at? What should I learn? How do I do this? What advice would you give a young person like that that comes to you trying to find their way? 
Look, first of all, you got to start practicing the practice. That's why it's called the practice of law. I tell a lot of people, you want to be a trialer, go affiliate with the public defenders and and see if there's a volunteer panel or a cheaply paid panel and start doing some DUIs and get in front of a jury on cases where I'm not saying a DUI is not important. It's important to the person who's charged with a DUI. But the stakes are smaller than some of our people who maybe a brain injury that you missed in an auto crash or something. So go get trial experience in the smaller cases. Also consider doing some workers' comp. You're talking to doctors. You're learning medicine. You're doing these things where the stakes, again, well, it's not that they're low, but they're not so high. So, And this is stuff that I actually did. I started as a defense firm, but I started doing workers' comp. I was talking to doctors and basically at a hearing with a doctor, you know, weeks into it. Having a connection to criminal law, that's the way to get to court faster. Do I think everyone's going to end up a criminal lawyer? No way. Is criminal law a great way to learn what we do? Yes, because the connection with the jury, to me, is the same. You either have the ability to do it or you don't. And if you don't, one way to get there is to practice. People look at Nick or Rick or all these other people that have things. And when you look at Nick, you got to remember he's gone to trial 200 times. Now, if anyone else is willing to do that, willing to take any case, willing to take some Luther cases, willing to do a two-day trial, a four-day trial, a short-notice trial, well, think about the muscle memory that's being developed. There's ways to do it, though, that are starting a little bit younger. And that's some of these things. Every public defender's office in the whole nation needs some help. And if you're volunteering your time for free, I think they're going to take it. But there's other things. And these are common things, right? Like you could join Toastmasters. You can go to training. And there's no one training. It's not one. It's not Trialers University. It's not Trial by Human. It's not Trialers College. It's none of those. Those are each one of those are errors in the quiver. But if they're not one that gets you on your feet, if they're not one that has you standing in front of people, they're not going to really change your life. The way you change your life is you do that. But, you know, there's other things that go along with that. I often talk about I ask people when I'm training them, hey, tell me what a what, what's your goal verdict to get? Like if you, you're a PI attorney, what's your goal? Some people, it might be a million or 10 million or 20 million. You, you name it. I hear everything. But every single one of those, the end result is a lot, right? A, if it's a case of a million dollars and it's a third, the attorneys basically tell me on one case they want to make $333,000. So I think about who in the world is making $333,000. It's not many people out there. If you think about what it takes to be a one percenter in the U.S., it's to make four hundred and like fifteen thousand in one year. So these lawyers are telling me they want to be one percenters, or like an elite athlete, whatever the, whether it's football or baseball or basketball. If the lowest paid contracts in the four to five hundred thousand dollar range, these people are telling me when I'm teaching they want to be that. So I ask them, when did the baseball player, when did the football player, and when did the basketball player start their craft? It's almost always at five, six, seven, eight. And they do it almost every day. They'll walk to the park. They'll, they'll hang a basketball hoop above their garage, their parent, you name it. They'll go to camps. They'll do all this stuff. So by the time they're in high school, they have a decade worth of practice. By the time they're trying to – and then they get four more at college. Now they're 14 years in trying to be elite. But the lawyers that are telling me they want to be elite are two years out of law school, maybe five years out of law school. But they're not putting in those things. Like you're asking me, what would I tell Harrison? Well, it's, it's do all these things. Take care of your body, right? Eat healthy when you can. And it's not perfect. Watch game tapes. Every pro athlete watches not only themselves, but they watch their enemies. People always tell me, I don't have time to do it. I'm like, 
if you know the defense guy that you're going against is down the street in trial right now, get your ass to that trial and watch them and learn and see what they're doing. People tell me, oh, I don't have time for it. I'm like, well, then don't expect elite results if you're telling me you're not going to make time to do it. And one of the things I did when I started working for Nick, I just went to every one of his trials that didn't conflict with a court hearing myself. I'd take my laptop, I'd sit in the back, and a lot was boring. I'm not going to pretend like all these trials are fun. They're not all fun. So during the boring parts, I'd do my emails, I'd try and keep up, but I'm watching and learning and seeing how is the judge acting? How is the defense acting? How are the witnesses acting? And of course, how is Nick handling all of that? And that's critical. And if anyone ever tells me they don't have time for that, I say, well, then you don't have time to be what you're telling me you want to be. So you're either going to make it or maybe your goals are a little too lofty if you're not willing to do this. Either, either you have to make the time or be satisfied being mediocre and with less because something's got to give, right? And the reality is we all have the same amount of time and you just have to make decisions. Some things you got to cut out. Some things, you know, you're not going to be able to make every baseball game of your kids and you might not be able to be the perfect parent and become a champion trial lawyer simultaneously. So, And that's okay. Right, exactly. And frankly, it's better for me because for everyone that chooses being mediocre, it's one less person I have to compete against. I'm trying to compete against the people who have committed to not being mediocre and that's hard enough. Right. Well, the people that aren't committed to being great, they're not really competition. You know what I mean? It's, it's, it's just the reality is that once you start to get to a higher level, you're mostly competing with yourself. Once you start to get to you know, the more elite levels of any profession, any career, you know, which is a good thing because you set your own bar. You, know, you push yourself, which is the reality of anybody that's great pushes themselves. Michael Jordan in the gym at 4.30 in the morning, the night after winning a championship. That's commitment to, you know, training to greatness. I don't even know that I'm junior elite, but I'm trying. Yeah. And then, you know, if you ever think you're there, that would probably be a problem, right? You know, and it's like, I've studied this stuff for a long time. We, you know, work together teaching this Trojan horse method program. And, and part of me doing case analysis and, you know, trial lawyers university through a pandemic was trying to, to learn, to figure out, you know, what these folks were doing, because you're fortunate to have Nick as a friend and a mentor. But most people don't have a mentor that knows what the hell they're doing and can guide them along the way, give them feedback or sit with their, you know, do a trial with them. And if you don't have a mentor, you got to go find kind of like part-time mentors and, you know, sit and talk with people. And because you, you have to learn somehow from somebody because this stuff is really complicated. It takes a lot of time to figure out. And if you have a coach, you got somebody giving you feedback. It helps a lot, I think, to say the least. And I want to follow up on that because it's important. I want to be clear. I've never done a trial with Nick. My mentorship that I got was me shoving my foot in the door. Nick, when's your next trial? I don't, you, don't have to t you don't have to talk to me during the trial. I don't have to eat lunch with you. When is the next trial? Where is it? I'm going to be there and I'll stay the hell out of the way. So anybody could be mentored by Nick Rowley or Rex Paris or Brian Panis know where the hell they are and, and force your way in the door and then leave them alone. But when I think back to Trojan Horse, you ended up coming up with a plan where people could pay once and come all the time. And those people chose to make other people their mentors. Remember the program, like you could pay one fee and you could come to all the programs. Well, those people were committed to being mentored by anybody and everybody because you never know who the mentor in the group is. 
I was teaching in Arizona once and a, and there was a, a person that was just hired by this law firm. She was actually in bookkeeping and they brought her to this thing because she was organizing lunch and they needed some administrative help. It was my program, but they were in charge of lunch. And I was just, the lawyers were hitting a little bit of a wall on board Dyer. And I pulled her out of the back and I said, have you seen what we're doing? And she said, yeah, I, I was watching. I learned that she wasn't a paralegal. She's a bookkeeper. And I said, can you talk to this jury for me? She did better than every lawyer. She became the mentor weeks into a bookkeeping job. And I think that's the other thing you have to keep in mind. Not every mentor's the old guy or gal with gray hair. Not every mentor is the one who has some impressive verdict or, you know, save someone from the death penalty. They might be the person who's your fake juror in the room when you're on your feet and they change how you look at your case. They give you a tiny little bit of feedback. That's mentorship all the way around. So it's great to have a good one, but showing up to live programs and getting on your feet, you end up with dozens of mentors. This is true. And it's the only way to get the connections with these people is to show up and spend time and have a cup of coffee or you know a drink with them, but get to spend time with people, find out who they are, get to know them. And you know that's why I love doing these live conferences that I think just adds so much it adds so much to my life, I know for sure. All the friends I've met, all the people I get to meet, all the great lawyers, all, all the people that are starting their journeys, right? Are looking for guidance because nobody shows up at a conference unless they're insecure about where they're at and they want to be better. You know, no student. They want to be better. They know they're not perfect. I want to, can I add to that? Because you brought up an important point. The want to get better requires not just work, but hard work. And most importantly, when I'm talking about that leadership, the discipline or the self-awareness, it's honest feedback. I've been to programs where I did really dumb stuff and everyone clapped. And I was like, I know that's not a real clap. That's a, maybe it's a pity clap or maybe we clap because we think we're supposed to. I don't want to be clapped for doing bad stuff. And I don't want to be positively reinforced for being an idiot. I actually need you to say, whoa, 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 whoa. Like, hey, yeah, you're actually doing this wrong, that wrong, and the other things wrong. And now you know you're actually getting mentored. But if your mentorship circle tells you you're great, you're in the wrong mentorship circle. Now, this is an old army quote, and I know people maybe don't like quotes and something, but there's a quote that says, if everybody's thinking alike, and somebody's not thinking. And so if you're being mentored by people who are all saying great job when it's not a great job, you ought to find a mentorship circle who will hold you accountable, who will actually mentor you and, and fight with you each step of the way. It's a fight. It's little things. Dan, you know, it. it's the clicking of the pen. It's the, the these random things. That, they're an absolute fight for some people, and you need people who will give you honest and quick feedback. It's got to be immediate and consistent. Anything other than that, you're creating the wrong kind of muscle memory. You'll go do the silly stuff that you shouldn't be doing next time because people aren't being honest with you. That's part of this process that we're all in. Yeah, and you know, we, we used to teach Trojan Horse together. Now I teach this skills training workshop slash boot camp, you know, really just teaching connection. Cause I realized from the pandemic that the whole game is connection. You know, watch Dick Raleigh, it's his connection. Friedman, it's a connection. And even the ones that, you know, are not the greatest connectors off the bat, you know, they just engage in longer trials. So maybe that they might not have the warmest personalities, but you learn to love them after a month, you know, cause, and, and they're always focused on their connection. 
But one thing that, that I think is so important that most people don't do is record themselves, videotape themselves presenting, and then play it back with somebody who has a different viewpoint or perhaps more experience in presenting a connection. So you actually get some real valuable feedback and you can see yourselves because people, most people do some really weird shit when you record them. You know, just grasping their hands or making funny faces or talking at a million miles an hour and not breathing because of the pressure. And even though this is just a, a condominium or apartment or a, a conference room, the pressure is crazy or the, what people feel, you know, the anxiety and just getting up there constantly and getting more comfortable, more comfortable, more comfortable. It's the only way to do it. It's just constantly get on your feet and to get that presence, connection, whatever you want to call it. It's just critical along those lines. On connection, Dan, important, if it's okay to say something. Sure. Reading transcripts, you don't learn connection. If you read all these guys' transcripts, some are just seem okay. What you're missing is their art of connecting, and it's through the nonverbal language. It's through how they control the courtroom. It's all these other things. So don't think asking for a trial transcript will show anything. It will certainly give you some good ideas, but it doesn't show connection. There's, and I'm going back to what I was saying before. There's no, there's no alternative to showing up to real trials and watching other people do what they do. I agreeably, and you know, it helps to know what you're looking for too, because you know, I really think I believe that connection is like a is an interplay between appropriate eye contact, you know, controlling your facial expressions, you know, to look concerned or or warm or whatever you want the person to feel that you're talking to you know, controlling the movement of your hands, controlling the pacing of your voice, the pausing of your voice, the words you use. Word selection is very important. Saying, you know, as we've all just heard, my name's Dan Ambrose, is different than as you've all just heard, my name is Dan Ambrose. You know, I mean, just the slight change of words. Everything makes a difference until you sit down and really practice and study these things and to really understand and then create some type of, you know, model that you're trying to replicate. I just think it's really hard to, to learn these things without, you know, having some practice and, and again, constantly get up there and, you know, even in front of focus groups, it's a great start to get your comfort, to get your presence. It's critical. Yeah, Dan, and there's, a, there's one more piece and you nor I are focused on it, but there's the other, how are you acting when the defense is doing their thing? How are you objecting? There's a whole another side of you that the jury and judge are both watching you on and it became so apparent to me when I had crossed the six-week line, <laughs> this long, longest trial I've ever had, that those things actually matter too. So the, the, the verbal, the nonverbal, and how you say things matter each and every time you're speaking. Well, speaking of speaking, you're coming to New York City September 20th to 23rd, and you're going to be speaking and teaching a workshop. So tell us, what are you going to be speaking on? Why should people come there to learn from you? Frankly, forget about all the other people coming. Forget about Panish, Paris, you know, Freed, Morelli, Rabinovitz. Forget about all those people. The people that say, I'm coming to see Jacob Norman. What's Jacob Norman teaching them? I think you need a few more seats in the room if I'm up at the same time as those guys. I'll tell you what we're going to teach, though, actually. And honestly, we are going to talk about this most recent verdict. It's not going to be a focus on the toxic tort portion. That's just the underlying fact. What I want to talk about and what we're going to focus on is what we learned. What did we learn in the build-up to trial? What are the lessons learned? And some of them are, 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 might seem silly. They're, they're so obvious, but you forget about them. So we're going to go from before trial to trial 
into after trial. And the focus is there again, is not to come learn about how to do a toxic tort trial. It's going to be how to do a trial and what did we learn and what did our jurors tell us? We've spent hours and hours with these juries on the uh, jurors, I'm sorry, on the phone learning. What did you like? What did you not like? And we're going to bring some of those lessons to everybody that wants to learn. And obviously this is one jury and in and, and one case and one location, but they're actually telling us a lot. And it's stuff that I think we ought to listen to. So it's been an unusual amount of time trying to get as much of that kind of feedback as possible. And the second thing we're going to teach is something that we've taught across the country. And that's how to even be ready for trial. How do you build a trial binder? And we learned this as we kind of bounce around and people have all these different systems. We needed a system. And it's been one of our most popular things because you can start having a better trial binder the, the second you're done with what we teach. Where some of these things, Dan, like you're talking about, you should be recording yourself. You should be watching people. You should be showing up. You should be getting on your feet. That takes time. This trial binder course, how to build and prep and, and, and plan a trial binder from intake, that can go into your practice the very next day that you get back to work. So that's basically by popular demand. It's been popular at Trialers University. It's popular at Trial by Human. We get sold out rooms all the time. And so we want to bring a practical aspect to the trial binder stuff where you can put it to work right away. And I hope when you think about what we just took out of this six-week trial, the verdict, yes, the verdict's nice, but the lessons are are valuable to everybody. And that's that's the second piece that we'll be bringing to New York City. I personally, if it was just came down to it, verdict or the lessons, I personally would take the verdict. But that's because I'm, you know, I'm short term sometimes when it comes to verdicts. But that was just all kidding aside. Last question I got for you before we wrap this up is, tell us, what would you say, looking back upon your career as a lawyer, you've been doing it now, what, 20 plus years? How long have you been at this for? Yeah, around 20. Maybe 20 and a half or so. All right. That was close, though. What would you say with your, your three most memorable moments, three greatest moments of being a trial lawyer? One of them has got to be getting this verdict, but maybe it's not. Because that, that was what it be for me. Because that's a lifetime of work. Getting a verdict is just like, it's just like the blowing out the candle. It's, it's the 57 years or whatever you had to live to get to that point, right? It's accumulation of a lifetime of work that you got put you in a position to put it all together to get that verdict. That's why the verdict is so significant, in my opinion. But you tell us, what are they for you? You can call it all those things, right? It's not even 10,000 hours. Like, if you want to talk Gladwell 10,000 hours, it's not that because at this stage, I should be 40,000 hours in, right? This commitment to end up there, that is right. In my professional career, sitting there wondering if it's going to be a zero and then getting 22 million, then a 41 million, well, the feeling that you have is unlike anything you could ever imagine, but you don't get to do anything about it. You don't get to jump up and down. You don't get to high five your friends. You don't get to call the people you love right then. You you are sitting there and just going through the process and the jury is getting pulled and it's taking a long time. There's a lot of questions and it is unlike anything that I could explain. And there's only a few things in life like that. So of course, that's great. Professionally, I think one of the things I'm I'm proud about as well is in 2009, I was one of the team that did the first trial ever of a detainee held in American custody in Afghanistan. And that was a big deal. And it was a big deal to me because we were holding these people with almost no rights. And President Obama said, no, we're going to we're gonna get these folks to trial. And so to, to be able to help lead that and do it is just something that's always going to be 
a special thing for me because it was the start of getting that system in the right direction. And it was under Afghanistan law. I got to be there. I got to meet great partners. And so super special opportunity is being a prosecutor, which was one of my roles in the army is that special to me. Yeah, it's special because I think I took everything I knew from being a PI lawyer and a defense attorney. And I think I was a fair and reasonable prosecutor and, and those folks deserved a fair and reasonable system to get them out of jail that some had been held into since shortly after the 9-11 attacks. And remember, this is, I'm sorry, that was actually in 2010. So people in jail that long with almost no rights. So it's very special. So getting your verdict, having the first trial in Afghanistan, was that as a prosecutor though? That was as a prosecutor. That trial was as a prosecutor. Okay. But it was slightly different because I was leading Afghan prosecutors to use their system and do it. So I would help them write an indictment. They would translate it. And then I would teach them how we would do it in America. So I didn't actually have to serve as a prosecutor. I was like advising the prosecutors. We got to work with the Supreme Court. And we actually, we got to work with the defense attorneys too. That was the first trial in Afghan's history where biometric stuff came in. The defense was that was somebody else's fingerprints. They didn't understand that there's only one set of fingerprints. That never had come through in their system. So it was, it was just great for so many reasons. Although I was on the prosecutorial side, I was leading prosecutors and leading the setup of a system that was meant to endure us leaving. But apparently did not. I'm still proud of it. I think we always knew that uh, when we left, the Taliban would likely take over. The Taliban's a patient group of people. So I'm still proud that from the years that I was doing it to the years where it collapsed, I don't, I don't think I wasted my time. Is it what I wanted to happen? Of course not. But those people did get justice. They got their day in court, and that kept happening for many years afterwards. Yep, that's a great point. Well, Jacob, that's what I wanted to talk to you about. So I think we covered a lot of stuff here, though. And, uh, and I learned a lot of stuff, too, which is kind of cool, too. That's always good. I thought I knew you pretty well, but didn't know about a lot of stuff that you shared here. So I appreciate you sharing and uh, look forward to our date on August 8th. That's at uh, Trial Lawyers University slash obviously the virtual webinars um, on August 8th. And we do some prep with Pat Selby before then. You're going to really like him a lot. He's a great guy in Chicago. Super smart lawyer. A little bit you know, younger than us. I think he's just turned 40 or so. Anyway, it's going to be pretty cool. So thanks for coming. Thanks for sharing. And I will see you soon. All right. Thanks for having me. Join us September 20th to 23rd in New York City for TLU Live. We're going to have some of the greatest trial lawyers in the country coming from Brian Panish, Ben Morelli, Judy Livingston, Joe Freed, Zoe Littlepage, Rex Paris, and the list goes on and on. And not only will we have four lecture tracks, but we're going to have seven workshop tracks where you can work on and hone a specific skill in a small group taught by a great trial lawyer. The website is tlunyc.com. Ready to train with the Titans and set records with your verdicts? Register for our live conferences and boot camps at triallawyersuniversity.com. Start getting your reps in before the big event by going to tluondemand.com to gain instant access to live lectures, case analysis, and skills training videos from the trial lawyer champions you love and respect, as well as pleadings, transcripts, PowerPoints, and notes for a roadmap to victory. Join the group that continues to get extraordinary results. Trial Lawyers University. 
produced and powered by LawPods.